So Advent is about two really huge historical moments that get tied together like an umbilical cord. So you have all the events in history, and at the end, you have his second coming. So, you know, Lent and Easter and all that's very straightforward. It seems very linear. In Advent, we can be caught, it seems like, between these two big things, but they're tied together and they work together. But the great, massive Advent moment is still to come in the future. This new heavens and this new earth where God answers all of our prayers for these thousands of years and thousands before us as his people Israel prayed similar prayers of thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So that massive moment is yet to come. But a good deal of American Christianity, I would suggest, has almost entirely forgotten this promise. We either think about going to heaven when we die, which you will go there, but that's not the answer to this big story. And some of us come out of churches and teachings where we were very much into trying to figure out the fine points of being able to predict when Jesus would come back. And again, that that can miss the point Because the point of this, the point of this big scriptural story is the promise of a new creation that's meant to give us a further and fuller hope for a new world, not just going to heaven when we die, but a new world in which we have new bodies and new tasks to perform where we're celebrating and implementing God's victory over evil and injustice and death, as we were just singing about. So this is all inaugurated when Jesus comes and announces and demonstrates and embodies his gospel, the kingdom. But it will someday be completed. And what Jesus was doing in the meantime was trying to answer this question. What would it look like if God was running the show? What what would earth be like? What would human relationship be like? What would happen with sickness and death and, and anger and injustice and cheating? What would happen with all that if God was running the show? And Jesus' basic answer was, watch and listen, and you'll find out. Listen to what I teach, watch what I do, and you'll find out. And in so doing, what Jesus was trying to do was create followers. He was inviting people to become a part of this big story of what God was doing in this renewed Israel, meaning to say reconstituting God's people around what God has always intended to have happen. So it's important to notice that Jesus' critique of what was happening in his day was not based on religion. It's really wrong for us to try to make Jesus a Lutheran who was just really mad at the law. Jesus was not some sort of, you know, proto-Calvinist who was just really mad at the law. His fundamental critique wasn't even based on the various Jewish leaders' misunderstanding of the law. Jesus' critique was fundamentally, sorry for the big word on a Saturday night, but warning, big word. Jesus' critique was fundamentally eschatological. His critique was fundamentally what you see now is not what's meant to be and it's not what's coming. That was his big critique. Everything else was sort of details. Yeah, the Pharisees had things wrong and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Herodians and the Qumran sect. Yeah, they all had stuff wrong. But Jesus was not like an intramural religious guy. Are you with me? Jesus wasn't doing intramural religion. 
he was talking about a whole new reality and was really answering these big five major worldview questions. Who are we? And Jesus' answer was we're humanity and we're Israel as God intended. That's who he and his followers are. Where are we? And Jesus' answer was though you're back in the land, you're still slaves. Yeah, you, you, you've come back to Zion, but you're still slaves, but God's gonna turn you into a people who will inherit the whole earth, not just this little strip of land on the Mediterranean. What time is it? Jesus' answer was, it's the beginning of the end, and exile is still gonna end, the kind of spiritual exile that they were experiencing in Jesus' day, and that evil would be defeated and God would reign. What's wrong? Jesus' answer is, sin and evil is rampant, and not merely in paganism, but in the people of God. See, his critique is much, much bigger, and then he answers the question, what's the solution? And his solution, as he announced it is, it's me and this kingdom message. And then the last big question, but how? How is all this to be? And Jesus is set forth as Israel's Messiah. And as Israel's Messiah, he puts forward this radical countercultural agenda that's meant to subvert both the political and religious status quo. And that is the basis of hope. While we pay attention to the Advent words and we do so joyfully and playfully in the good sense, we, with childlike joy, love the Advent words, what's really going on in hope is subverting all the human evil that suppresses people. In friendships, in marriages, in our big systems, you know, the principalities and powers that rule in the earth. The source of hope is Jesus' subversive agenda to bring his space and time into this space and time. So our reading in Jeremiah tells us helping us understand hope, this first word of Advent. Our reading in Jeremiah helps us understand that hope is actually kind of a reflexive word. It plays off of hopelessness because it's only people who are feeling hopelessness or uncertainty or fear that begin to wonder about hope. And often what we begin to wonder is something like this. God, in the face of all this, are you just gonna sit still and do nothing? And so whatever the all this is in your life, when people are feeling hopelessness, what's underneath that is this question, God, are you going to do anything? And the answer Jeremiah tells us is yes, the days are coming. You can look at it there in your order of service. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill my good promise and God's people will be saved and they'll live in safety. And therefore, as David said in Psalm 25, in you, Lord, I put my trust. You're God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Basically, in sort of down-to-earth words, David is saying, I've thrown my lot in with you, God. I've bet my life on the fact that what you intended when you created and what you're recreating in Jesus, I'm betting my life on that. You say, well, yeah, of course. But not everybody actually does. 
And I would bet if most of us in this room tonight were honest, that even we routinely hedge our bets. Well, if I could just manipulate a little bit, then I might be able to get my will done. Well, if I could just retain a little bit of my anger, it kind of works on my wife, and I can control her that way. Or if I can just, you know, use a little bit of my power at work in supervising people and not actually work for their good, but it, it lets me give good reports up the chain to middle management. You see, we hedge our bets all the time. And Jeremiah is saying there's a reality here now that David is tapping into and saying, I can actually bet my life on you. So David answers the really big question. This is one of the biggest questions of human life. And I don't even mean this in a particularly religious or conversionistic way, although if we were talking about conversion, this would work very well. But this is just a really huge human question. In whom or what can we trust? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've gone through enough political cycles in my life that I'm kind of done with that. And, you know, the economy worldwide doesn't seem trustworthy. You know, in whom and what can we trust? Science, politics, education, religion, what is it? And then Paul tells us in our reading in Thessalonians that such a decision is important because look at the last couple of lines there in your Thessalonian reading where Paul's praying for something because he knows that this kind of decision leads to a a certain kind of life that he describes this way. May you be filled with confidence in the presence, and that is precisely Advent. So you can read that. May you be filled with confidence at the Advent when God comes and You know, for right now, God lets people have their own way. He really does. And one of the big insights for your own spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness is that God will rarely yell at you. He's not a nagging mom. It's actually a very scary thought to think that normally God will leave us where we want to be. He will not raise his voice and yell and nag. He does occasionally. There's exceptions to every rule. There's a Moses here and there who hears from a burning bush. There's a Paul who, you know, gets knocked to the ground. There's exceptions to every rule. But normally, God leaves us where we are. We have to actually desire to be with him. And so Paul knows that when someone's made that basic decision to place their confidence in and follow Jesus and to become his student, you know, his apprentice, his disciple, He then looks at these people and he says, now what I'm praying for you is that when the advent of God comes, when Jesus comes again, when God our Father, when our master Jesus arrives with all of his followers, that you'd be filled with confidence, with hope. But in the meantime, look at your Luke reading. Like, when you (laughs) read that, you know, we're coming here to Advent wouldn't you expect to see, you know, uh, I, you know I, I think of the pageants at the old Crystal Cathedral, you know, wouldn't you expect to see donkeys and, you know, magi, you know, coming and, you know, you think of Advent, you know, you think of all these sort of iconic Christmas card things, right? And where the heck does this come from? 
Signs are going to create anguish and perplexity. People will faint in terror, apprehensive of what's coming on the world. What the heck does that have to do with little, you know, little baby Jesus in a manger and, and shepherds, you know, seeing, seeing a star in the sky and following it, you know, like where did all that go? Well, because we find ourselves, as I said when we began in Advent, we're both looking back in celebrating the birth of Jesus and looking forward in another sort of birth when he would come. And Luke says that when this happens, it's going to be accompanied by all these signs, this terror and apprehension. And I think what this alerts us to is that much of Advent, the way we live it, like the songs that we sang tonight really helped us understand the story from Israel in exile to Israel being delivered. But where we stand now, from that moment to the second advent, much of what we deal with in advent is actually dug from the soil, the harsh human soil of human struggle and dashed dreams. It's not for no reason that the first word of advent is hope. Because so much of humanity actually lives in a way that it seems to them that hope's like gone on a vacation, like long time no see hope. But in Advent, we're given the opportunity for these spiritual practices of waiting, of anticipating, of trusting. But again, if we're gonna be honest, we have to say that sometimes in our own accusing hearts and certainly in the world at large, this can seem really stupid, really naive, and really overly spiritual. Really, like, what the heck are you waiting for? Like, really, you think someday God's gonna come and just take care of all injustice? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually our hope. Oh, come on, really? You think there's going to be a time when people aren't sick? Yeah. Yeah, precisely. That's our hope. I know, and it seems as nutty as thinking that Israel could ever get out of Egypt. How the H-E double toothpicks, is that going to work exactly? Right? How stupid did that seem? That they would ever be able to get out of such power? Or Babylon? Or the power that Jesus found people encased in, in when he came. It didn't seem possible, but Jesus said through his words and works, if you want to know what it's going to be like when my dad's in charge, watch this. Because if Jesus just wanted to show that he was cool or spiritually powerful or religiously hip, he could have mounted a donkey and done backflips on it down Main Street in Jerusalem and said, yo. <laughs> but he didn't. He stopped the funeral procession of a widow whose only son had just died and raised him to life and said, that's what it's like when my dad's in charge. That kind of pain, that kind of excruciating, unspeakable pain that happens to a woman, it's not that way anymore. The woman at the wells, Zacchaeus, going to a party at Matthew's house, you can go on and on and on, having a loving conversation with a confused rabbi, Nicodemus. You can go on and on and on, and Jesus' words and works teach us that this is what it's like. When the advent happens, when God comes, this is what it's really going to be like. And we must not lose that hope in the dim light of going to heaven when we die. 
Yeah, that's an aspect of what's happening, but this is not just about us and where our little fannies end up after we die. This is about God breaking in on the world. What Jesus is saying is, the time to come trumps the time at hand. The time that's coming trumps this time. Easy. Bam. So while Advent, though, is meant to give us hope to kind of a crushed people and to inspire a kind of a faithful endurance. I mean, we have to be realistic about that. There's genuine real despair in the world. What's Russia going to do under Putin? What are China's real intentions? What's North Korea going to do? How are we going to fix this national debt? What are we going to do about declining household incomes? What about this fiscal cliff that they say is coming? But at some point, all of this is not conceptual in the way I'm talking about it. At some point, Advent in these words like hope, love, peace, and joy, they become intensely personal. Because some people lose so much hope in a marriage that they'll poison the tuna sandwich of their spouse to try to kill him. Just happened yesterday in Orlando. This lady was so paralyzed evidently in some horrible marriage that she actually thought to herself, think of the planning that has to happen to poison your husband's tuna sandwich to kill him. That's somebody without hope. I don't know if you saw it today, unspeakably tragic. A starting linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs, been in the NFL for 11 years, played every game of his whole career. He had achieved what every young athlete could ever dream to achieve. He got up early this morning, Kansas City time, went to his girlfriend's house and killed her. Went to the training faculty where his team is, went to the chief stadium or wherever, in front of his coach and general manager, put a gun to his head and killed himself. So we're not talking little religious stuff here. These little words aren't the the rituals of a church. This is the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you, Jesus. All the human hopes, all the human fears, they're rolled up into you. But some intelligent people say there's no hope for the world. That humanity is just an accident of history, that the human race will pass away like dinosaurs. Science isn't fixing us, nor is communism, socialism, consumeristic capitalism. None of it seems to be working. We don't seem to be able to educate ourselves out of this mess. There is no real hope. So then how do we let hope have its place? You know, its rightful place, not as an escapist withdrawal or paralysis. But how do we have a genuine kind of hope? Well, the first thing is to recognize that hope is always situated between a life that's gone wrong and the expectation of the world being put to rights between the cross, theologically speaking, and the second coming. So I just want you to think with me here for a minute as we're closing here. And, and maybe you can put a little bit of your own personal life into this. And I just want to suggest to you that these two biblical words... God remembered are some of the sweetest words any human being can ever hear. God remembered Noah and saved from the flood. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. 
God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he delivered them from Egyptian slavery. God remembered Hannah, and she had a son. God remembered Mary and Elizabeth and his covenant love. These are the sweetest words that anyone paralyzed in hopelessness could ever hear. God sees me in my pain. God sees me in my isolation. God has not forgotten. He has remembered. So maybe you're here tonight and you've got a bit of a broken heart. Well, can you open yourself to the possibility to hope for deliverance, for God to break into your life? Can you open your life and soul to an active anticipation to see God on the move. As we pause now for a bit of silence, I just want to commend to you this Advent prayer that you may want to just keep with you in the next few weeks. God, may I stay awake to hope and to new possibilities this Advent season. May I be someone who waits for you actively with hope and confident joy. Amen.